Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. And we are at The Spotlight. We are your hosts. Ambassador retired Harry Thomas. And I'm the chief, retired as well. Harry, who do we have today as guests? We have the ubiquitous Sarah Gross, who's going to tell us about her life uh, growing up in the UAE, living in Canada, representing Great Britain, being a an athlete, coach, mentor, uh, fighter for women's rights, and all-around great person. Oh, wow. Sarah, thank you for taking the time. Wow, thanks for having me. How, first of all, thank you for calling me ubiquitous. That's a great. <laughs> but how do I get to be retired? <laughs> when do I get to have that? <laughs> well, uh, Harry has how many? 30-something years, Harry? Harry? Yeah, and uh, I have, I'm busier now than when I was active duty, so... <laughs> Indeed, I did 21 years, so I guess we're busier, like Harry said, now. Right, right. Sounds good. Be careful what you ask for, you know? <laughs> totally, totally. Indeed. Well, Sarah, please tell our audience about yourself. Wow. Okay. Um, I think you did a great job of introducing me. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was a professional triathlete for 15 years, and um, one of the big things is that I tried for 10 years to win Ironman. Um, and it took me that long <laughs> to finally win. I kept coming second, third, fourth, um, and never stood on top of that podium. And then when I finally did, I felt like I was ready to retire, actually, <laughs> back to that theme. Um, and we, um, myself and a group, advocated for uh, equal slots for the pro women at the Ironman World Championship. That was a really big part of my sort of overall career path. And then I started Feisty Media. And with Feisty Media, we do a lot of work uh, with content for women, active women, educating women on how to get the best out of their bodies throughout their lives. So that's what I do now. Well, tell us about your childhood. Let's take a step back. Okay, okay. The closest I come to uh, Iron Man is my uh, Timex watch. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. But tell us about your, your childhood. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, you know, I'm from Canada, so I spent my first sort of 13 years just in a regular Canadian community near Toronto. Uh, and then when I was 13, uh, my family moved to the Middle East, to United Arab Emirates. And we were in the province of Abu Dhabi. Um, before anybody knew where Dubai was, before <laughs> nobody knew it. But, you know, my friends thought I was moving to Saudi Arabia because that was the only place that they had even heard of in the Middle East. Um, so, and the small town we moved to was sort of much closer to, what would you say, like an authentic Middle Eastern experience uh, in terms of, you know, the communities there were only 20 years since they had been, Bedouins living in the desert, you know, and they had had this massive growth from um, from the oil and gas industry uh, that exploded there. And my dad got a job there in education and went over and started helping them build 
um, their, all of their college and university systems. Um, so that's why we went to the Middle East. And uh, yeah, and so then I was a 13-year-old in an international school with, uh, with one other Canadian, I think, in the whole school. So that was a very um, unique experience that took me a while to adjust to. Well, you know, our children grew up overseas also, going from mm-hmm. post to post, and everybody's different. You know, for some, it's anxiety. Some, it was cool. Some always want to have that lust for travel. Some never fit in. So true. And as adults, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. So for you, what's, what was the result? Yeah. Okay. Great question. I'd love to hear about your kids too. Although I know I'm not interviewing you. (laughs) Feel free to jump in because I love hearing those experiences of, of other kids who had that, um, that kind of like cross-cultural childhood. But, um, yeah, for me, I had a really difficult first year there where all I wanted to do was go home. You know, um, I just like begged my parents, like, I want to go home. I want to go live with my friends. I finally got them to send me home for Christmas uh, to see my old friends. And then we, uh, and the second year though, and I don't really know what shifted. Like we went home to Canada for the summer. By the time I came back, I I had completely flipped the switch on that. And some of my closest friends in my school were no longer, you know, they had been in the first year were like the British girl, the Australian girl, the American kids um where in the second year it was my friendship choices were more around who I got on with best and we'd found some cultural familiarities so like my very best friend from that time was from Lebanon um and I had another friend from Africa who was really good friends um so I think I eventually I just sort of I guess I just allowed it to happen and I completely changed right so that by the time I went back to university in Canada, but after that, I knew I had to leave again and go somewhere else. Um, I did my last year of high school in Scotland at a boarding school. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I needed I needed just, well, first of all, I did need to get out of the Middle East um, because the school system was ridiculously hard. Um, and so, um, yeah, so then I had, basically, I adjusted um, and was like forever different too, in terms of like, now I feel like I don't necessarily have a, a culture that's my home. And I feel like the world is my home. Um, I don't, I'd love to know if your kids feel that too. I think, I, I think you're right. I, just to give you an idea, my kids graduated from Zimbabwe when Harry was the ambassador there, for example. And one of the things that I always amaze myself, no matter what age they were, they were willing to have a conversation with the adult people like they were adult and they were communicating, mm. and they were half and they were worldly. They're, they're, you know, they were not that narrow and their friends were from around the world. I think that was one of the things that I saw like impacted them more. Don't you think, Harry? Well, my daughter, I think the worst thing is having to come home for 12th grade. Yeah. She was had a lot of friends and that that really tore her up. Uh, because the Americans' public school is so different uh, than the public school in Bangladesh. And so she's become a person that never wants to move, you know, <laughs> never wants to move. So it's all, uh, you know, every kid's different, but we have third culture kids, as we call them. Yes. Uh, it's mm-hmm. so many now. So, mm-hmm. and there's no one description, but the, the description is you never quite, they never quite fit in. 
Yeah, that has yeah. completely been my experience. And even now, like I've lived back in Canada for 12 years and it's fine. I, of course, I culturally, I completely mix. I have the accent. I look the part. Um, but there's always just that little percentage that I feel like I, I'm, I don't quite 100% fit. And, and that's okay. You know? No, it is. It is. It is. Now, it is amazing how kids from, I guess, different worlds, yet they feel kind of like the same, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like you say. You're a citizen of the world versus a citizen of one country only. Mm -hmm. Well, going back to what what sports did you participate in? Yeah, it uh, it was completely different when I lived in Canada to when I went to the Middle East. Um, So I was a soccer player. I played every sport in school, though. You know, like I was on every team. It was upsetting when I had to pick one, you know, in the school season. For example, we ran track and soccer was at the same time. So I was just running like a headless chicken trying to get to all the practices. Um, but I played soccer uh, at sort of at, on our city team, you know, and I went to sort of some international tournaments in the U.S. when I was 12, 13 years old. And then when I moved to the Middle East, we that the level of play for girls on average was not quite the same as it was a smaller place, um, but mm-hmm. also culturally, we, they didn't have the same support system for girls in sport. And so that's when I started running and swimming on my own. Um, it's sort of like how I got my start in triathlon in a way, because in order to have that same experience of pushing my body, I had to go out and run further distances on my own or, or, and, and learn to swim and swim laps. So. Well, I'm your enemy. I was a stroke and turn judge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. DQ, DQ. Totally. And as a triathlete who didn't, you know, as an elite triathlete, a lot of them take up swimming or are swimmers from being swim kids, you know. So oh, yeah. I was kind of like a 16-year-old when I took up swimming. So my, my turns are not, are, they're okay, but <laughs> no, that's my best. My- my daughter was a varsity swimmer, and the thing for her that she loved it. But the terrible thing is when you're a high school girl and you have shoulders like a man, and your mother's shopping for you in the male section, you know. Mm-hmm. But that was the way it was, you know. Um, so I, I very much endorse the swimming, and uh, it's a great, great, great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we said, have a doctorate from Edinburgh. You know, you clearly don't like the sun. Uh, <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, your dissertation focused on women's history. Please tell us about your dissertation. Yeah. So first about the sun, I actually <laughs> love the sun. <laughs> right. I don't know why I keep making this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where you're located right now before you answer the dissertation question. Uh, I'm in Victoria, British Columbia. So oh, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a little sunnier than Scotland, but not much. <laughs> oh, my God. It is, it's, to me, it's the most beautiful place in Canada. Mm, Victoria's wonderful. Victoria. But you don't like the sun, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't prioritize it, clearly. Yeah, um, yeah so my PhD, I did, I studied world religions, actually, mm-hmm. um, or, or even going back one step further. Yeah. I went to university to do math and physics. Um, Mm -hmm. And after my first year, I was in a, I was sitting in a physics class. I think it was the second week of second year. And I'm like, 
I don't want to do this. Um, and I walked straight to the religious studies department. I, I had sort of had an interest in religion because I'd seen so many different world religions and I understood it to be um, like, I, I still understand religion to sort of be a construct that we use to understand the world. But I, I also saw how close it was to people's hearts and their ethics and their, their really how they present in the world um, and how they understand community too. And so I really wanted to dig in on that. And I went to the religious studies department and everybody was kind of had been in physics or math, all the professors, because there's this connection between physics and philosophy, mm-hmm. you know, and then you very quickly end up in a sort of a study of world religions. So that was super interesting to me. I did my undergrad and my master's in world religions. And then I had a desire to study uh, history, to study my own, mm-hmm. my own history in a way um, and to do women's history. So I did a sort of ju- a history of Judaism and early Christianity. Um, and I compared um, women's, like I compared a variety of communities. So an early Greek community, a Christian community and uh, a and traditional Jewish community and compared how many freedoms the women had within those communities all in the ancient world. Um, so that was kind of my, the direction my PhD ended up going uh, once I combined all my interests. No, that's great. Uh, e equals I times R is all I remember from physics. I don't remember anything. <laughs> but uh, you know, Alex and I lived all over the world. So, you know, with 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 Muslims, Christians, Jews, um, in India, you know, where it was very hard for me to understand all the different religions of India. But it also causes you to question your own religion, you know, because it's like, how can you say that Catholicism, which I belong to, is a one true religion when your friend is Muslim or Hindu or, or Buddhist? Uh, or traditional religion, you know? And uh, so that was, that's been complex. How did you find, were women's rights trampled in all these religions? Um, Not as badly as you might think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, I I think sometimes the assumption that women's rights are trampled causes us to see that, if you see what I mean. So like when you're looking at ancient history, there's not a ton of evidence or a ton of writings. So when you look at those writings, if you're assuming that women were not present or were not in leadership positions, then that's what you end up seeing. And so sometimes it's just about looking at the evidence in a different way. Um, So I had a lot of really good mentors who helped me see, like, if you're looking at ruins, don't assume that the small, the small room off to the side of the temple was where the women were. Like why make that assumption just because every other historian did like, what are some possible other ways we could think about what those ruins might be. Just as one example, um, I have lots of them. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't make assumptions. Totally. What was the surprise out of your, in women's right, like what you're talking about? What was your surprise? Are you like, oh, I didn't realize this. And the data show you something that surprised you, for example. Yeah, I think the biggest, the most surprising part that came out of my PhD was that um, actually the traditional sort of Jewish um, community had the most freedoms for women. So um, we found, like we found some um, epitaphs, like some grave tombstones that had women's names on them that said like a woman's name and then head of the temple. Um, And that had like some surprising if you looked at it. So there was one epitaph. The first one that was found that had a woman's name on it 
they said, oh, it must be basically a misprint. Like someone had a typo when they were etching, <laughs> you know, and actually, no, like that's a woman's name. And she was head of the temple. And, and how was she head of the temple? So we sort of dug in on some of um, some of those questions and actually found that women uh, played leadership roles at various times during history through kind of like ebbs and flows in, in all communities. But in the, my particular time period was the first and second century. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Join us every week for the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. The Ambassador is host Harry Thomas, and the Chief is host Alex Morales. Together, they bring you different views on today's challenges, from politics to education, security, defense, and the economy. The Ambassador and the Chief, along with their guest experts, outline new perspectives and lively discussions. Tune in to the Spotlight on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You're listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the Spotlight. And we're back with the Spotlight with the incredible Sarah Gross. Harry. Hey, Sarah, one thing we see today continue is in American churches, uh, women in leadership roles. Mm-hmm. Throughout the civil rights movement, women were in leadership roles. And now in the black churches, particularly the Protestant ones, we have a lot of women who have become preachers. Yeah, is, I believe that, it. Is that the same in Canada? Uh, is that what you see in other parts of the world? Yeah. So when, when I was studying world religions, it was at Queen's University in Ontario. And um, it was there was an attached theological college that was the most liberal theological college, I think, in the country. And it was connected to the United Church. So we had a lot of folks from the LGBTQ community mm -hmm. becoming pastors, um, tons of women, um, even Buddhist monks, um, both male and female studying there. And um, so, yeah, I think, again, it sort of goes back to like what... Um, what I was saying earlier, that like what you don't assume that women aren't leaders, because when you look, actually, it's probably happening all around you. Um, and the way that we perceive women's leadership um, is is really, really important. So who we see as a leader and who we and who we listen to. Um, and the more that we say, 
the more that we identify and raise up female leaders, the more that they'll be seen and their voices will shine. Well, we just saw in the Supreme Court in the United States, they changed the way they ask questions. And it turns out the reason they did that is because the other male justices were talking over the female justices. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Sorry, unpack that for me. What was the change? Well, before any justice could ask a question at any time. So um, Clarence Thomas, male and very conservative, didn't ask questions. And this year he started asking a lot of questions. So people thought, oh, he's just unleashed. But it turns out it wasn't him. It's because the women justices insisted that you just go from justice to justice now. And they said it was, uh, Justice Sotomayor said it was because they found out that no matter whether they were liberal or Democrat, uh, liberal or Repub- uh, conservative, the male justices were talking over the female justices. Mm-hmm. Yep, I believe that. That's a cultural, you know, it's a cultural thing where we've somehow managed to get to a place where um, men more often, it's not all men, but men more often feel comfortable voicing their opinion very quickly um, and women don't as much. And, and of course, we see the reverse of that all the time. Like I say, there's always examples, but those are that's how the averages are right now. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. No, that's amazing. Well, you, what make you become a triathlete? Yeah, while triathlon. In <laughs> Edinburgh, especially in such a warm weather. With such a warm weather. <laughs> there's so much <laughs> bike so riding in the sunshine. <laughs> Um, actually what happened was when I was in Canada, I was doing a lot of running and swimming, same as from my high school days. And I volunteered at the local triathlon and they put me in charge of booking in the elites. Like when they came in the morning, I, you know, I handed them their numbers and all of this. And the one thing I observed, first of all, was that there weren't very many women doing the triathlon in the first place. And then when I went out and watched it, every single woman, I just found to be the most inspiring thing, like watching people go from, it didn't matter how fast she was or what she looked like, you know, coming from swimming and going onto that bike. I just thought this is the most inspiring thing I've ever seen. <laughs> um, so the next year I did the triathlon myself um, with a fairly slow bike ride. Um, and then when I went to, then the next year, I just happened to be going, like I was going to Scotland to do my PhD and I had a supervisor there I wanted to work with and there were other reasons for going, but I thought, you know, I'd really like to be good at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I mean, it worked for me because in Canada at the time we had a lot of really great elite athletes in triathlon. If I had gone out and done more triathlons in Canada, I wouldn't have stood out at all. Like I would have just been kind of like, maybe top 10 sometimes, but because I was in a smaller country um, and at the time the elite team was away, of course they were avoiding the weather. So they were away training in Spain or something. (laughs) (laughs) So I would show up at the triathlon and maybe win or come second or third at at a local level. Um, And that's what made me think, Oh, maybe I can be good at this. So can you explain what is a triathlon for our audience? Just, you know, for they don't for those that they don't know what it consists of. Sure, yeah. So it basically goes swim, bike, and run. Okay. Um, and typically, the shorter races will be a five hundred meter swim, a twenty ten to twenty k bike, and a three to five k run. 
that will be the short one. And then the long one, the Ironman, which is what I did, is a, sorry, I did that in kilometers. Do you need miles? No, it doesn't matter. That's okay. <laughs> all over the world, so that's okay. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So in the Ironman, it's 2.4 mile swim or 3.8 kilometers. It's a 112 mile bike ride and wow. a full marathon at the end. So it's pretty did, long. <laughs> did you ever compete in the U.S. out of curiosity? I did, yeah. Did while. you ever did the Ironman in Haines City, Florida? Just out of curiosity. I, I have, yes. That's where I live. Really? Yeah. Nice. There you go, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I live. And you were, were you were you there, Alex? Were you watching? Uh, uh, I watch it sometimes. Because, <laughs> you know, it's pretty cool. You know, I like did you. not have a great race there, but I didn't have a terrible. I think I maybe was sixth or eighth in Florida. Uh, That's not bad. Sorry, right. I'll take it. I know. I bet you that if I do that, I'll be like the last guy trying to... <laughs> Crow, go ahead, Harry. No, we, that's uh, that's fantastic. What a small world! I know. She's the second triathlete we interview. Uh, state representative from Georgia, uh, Lim is triathlete. Uh, that's true. And last week, one of uh, Alex met one of our Yale, my Yale students, Peter Zhang, who's a triathlete. Yale just has a a club. They're trying to make it a varsity sport. So, uh, but we're we're restricted to watching. Um, so, <laughs> we were restricted to too much. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, I'm too old for that. So, Great Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Gareth Ziambi, a good friend of mine, is a trainer, one of the trainers for Great Britain's Olympic team. He was track and, and now he does swimming and diving. Mm -hmm. And he's an incredible athlete, but not good enough to make the team. But why did you? He was from Zimbabwe. He went to Great Britain for political reasons mm -hmm. um, and became a trainer on three last three Olympics. Why did you choose to uh, represent Great Britain and not the Maple Leaf? Yeah, good question. You know, it, it comes, I think we've sort of already answered it in a way. And I'm kind of glad because it, in, in a sense, I know that a lot of people would find me to be a traitor. <laughs> but, but like... By that point in my life, I had lived in three countries. I really, again, my cultural identity was kind of up in the air or mixed. Um, and I really didn't have that sense of um, home and country with Canada. And so when I lived in the UK and in Scotland in particular, I, um, I started training a little bit with a national team in Scotland and they had a really good coach there that I liked. And uh, I found out that you can be, you can get on the Scottish national team if you live there for three years. Oh, so, yeah. So after I lived there for three years, I went and I tried out for the national team and I sort of talked my way on to that. And it, it got me into a training group that was really elite and where I was training with some of the best people in the world. And that really helped propel me. So I'm glad that I did it. And then I, I do have a grandmother from Scotland. So there is a little bit of a well, cultural connection. Trying to justify it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Canada. That didn't okay. <laughs> patriotic over here. <laughs> what, uh, so what made you stop? Oh, what made me stop triathlon? Yeah. Uh, I was just done. I mean, I was... I didn't win. Like I said, I didn't, I, when I first came into the sport, I, I won a European championships when I was racing for Great Britain really early. 
Um, I, d- I had some really good Ironman results and podium finishes. And I decided, oh, I can win Ironman. Give me a couple years, no problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, this is what I thought. And that easy as it looks. <laughs> yeah, 10 years later, I like haven't won yet. I'm basically ready to quit. You know, I had a daughter by that point. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was 38 years old. Like, hmm, maybe I should get on with my life here at some point. Um, and then I won. <laughs> uh, and then I won again. And then oh, wow. I was done. <laughs> so, so you left when you were on top, basically. Yes, I did. I did get a couple of really nice sponsorship opportunities. I got a chance to go and race in Bahrain and be on that team. And I did a lot of cool things in the next couple of years after that. But I definitely was on the downward <laughs> shift in terms of my uh, motivation to keep training. Just out of curiosity, what's the... F- for prepare you to a race, right, or to an Ironman race, what, how long do you prepare yourself? Are you always constantly training? Uh, is it constant training or you just block 90 days and just go all out to your race? Just Yeah, I wish it took, only took 90 days. That would be amazing. Um, <laughs> we, like, we book, like, so I'll be, I'll be training most of the year. And okay. a lot of our year will be focused on the Ironman World Championships, which is the one in Hawaii. Um, on the okay. island in Kona that you've, probably, you've maybe seen on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, you spend a chunk of the year trying to qualify for that race. Okay. And then, so you might have one peak. In an ideal season, you'd have one peak where you qualify, and then you rest a little bit, and then you'd go into – and that's in October. So then you're looking to peak again in October and maybe have another you know, three-week, month three month-long break uh, after that. And then you start training again. <laughs> wow. Go ahead, Harry. Well, please, you founded Tri-Equal. What is its mission? Tell us about Tri-Equal. Yeah, so Tri-Equal, um, it's an interesting story. So in 20, I think in 2011, Ironman changed the way that the pros qualify for their world championship. Mm-hmm. And they uh, somewhat arbitrarily decided that the female pros would get 35 slots and the men would get 50 Um, And this is strange because it's in a sport where we had equal prize money more or less from the beginning. At the very first world championships, all the pros stood together and said, we want equal prize money for the men and women. Um, It's very rare to not have equal prize money. And we do in in Hawaii at the world championships too. So to have that kind of decision, like to have unequal access to that um, and the world championships, the Ironman world championships is a place that can make or break your career. Um, so then you had less women able to do that. And we said, that's not right. <laughs> um, so we started by asking them if they'd be willing to change it. <laughs> Suggesting politely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then they kept telling us no. Um, and then at the time, you know, it's before Instagram, before TikTok, like everything was on Twitter back then. So we did, we just coordinated a massive Twitter campaign where we collected a bunch of um people ahead of time. So we were all tweeting the same thing on the same day. Um, and our campaign was called 50 women to Kona. And so after that, so we did that, they still didn't change it by the way. Um, and then what was the reason, if I may, what was the the reasoning, the reasoning? Yeah. The reasoning was to do with the proportions of men and women that were participating in the sport. So they felt like there was about that, that represented about how many women versus how many men were actually participating in the sport. 
But if you think about that, like it makes sense, like in terms of the math, but if you think about it, like imagine going and watching like the Olympic final in the marathon <laughs> and there's like less women and it's like, oh, well, because there's less women in, in running marathons in the world, we decided to have less women or like on the track. It's like, they don't take up all eight lanes because it's like, well, there's not as many women who run hurdles in the world. So we'll just not let one woman be like, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, so, but that was their reasoning. I don't know. I, they had business reasons. I think they were scared that the amateur athletes were also going to want to have equal slots and that they didn't oh. want to piss off their main customer base, which was 25 to 55 year old men um, who participate in their Ironmans. So that was, there are business reasons that I understood. Um, I didn't think it was right, but, and then, sorry, just to answer your question there, Harry, um, we then after that realized, oh, we have like several other layers of challenges in triathlon in terms of inclusion. Um, and this is before like the recent, you know, in recent year, in, well, in the last year and a half, like so the social justice movements have just kind of exploded and everyone's a lot more aware about the need for diversity and inclusion. But that was kind of at an early stage, us saying, oh, like, can we make change in our sport for other demographics too? Like, because we're so white, we're so upper class, we're so male dominated. So what can we do? So we found a tri-equal to try to make change in that region. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Join us every week for the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. The ambassador is host Harry Thomas and the chief is host Alex Morales. Together, they bring you different views on today's challenges from politics to education, security, defense, and the economy. The ambassador and the chief, along with their guest experts, outline new perspectives and lively discussions. Tune in to the spotlight on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You're listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the spotlight. And we're back with the spotlight with the fantastic Sarah Gross. Go ahead, Harry. Well, Sarah, uh, we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, opportunities for women and other underrepresented groups in triathlons. Why, why have we not made more progress? Well, you know, it's like we were talking about on the break. A lot of it has to do with the fact that triathlon is so expensive. Um, that's really the easiest answer. Mm-hmm. I think that, but I think that also, I think there's a culture challenge with triathlon too, that actually 
there's a resistance to change and there's a kind of macho attitude around triathletes that um, because it's this triathlon, right? It's like, it's the thing people say when they want to say someone's achieved something great in sport or the thing you go after if you want your friends to think you're an amazing athlete. Like I did a triathlon. Um, so there's this sense that we, that culturally triathlon wants to be this like exclusive club, right? So of course you have a problem. You have a problem on a culture level that then you also have an um, access problem or a challenge. We had one of our, we have a triathlon um, team called Feisty Triathlon. Uh, it's a largely a women's team, but one of our representatives went to the Chicago Triathlon recently, and she did this new category that we're supporting full on called the Divi Bike category. Um, so that's like where you go to wherever the city is that you want to do the triathlon. And instead of having your own bike, you're, you're competing against other people that all ride on those city bikes. You know, the ones you put your credit card on. <laughs> so you don't have to travel with your bike. You don't have to train on an expensive bike, right? Because you're not going to be racing on one and you do, uh, it's, you would have to do a short race because those things are heavy, <laughs> <laughs> but it allows a level on which like first it levels the playing field because no one has a $10,000 bike that's in your category. Um, but also it allows anyone to just rock up and try uh, the triathlon. So that's, that's been one of our solutions so far. That's great because we know if people want to give access, they can. Uh, one of our former guests um, runs winter for kids where they brought, um, underrepresented uh, women and minorities into winter sports mm. with the help of the great uh, Olympic medalist Ted Ligeti and uh, you know how closed winter sports have been in the United States but they've been able to do it mm-hmm. so people want to, to change triathlon from a club <laughs> you know to open for the masses they can, they can do it if they want to yeah, I'm a big advocate for um, leadership. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, we often focus a lot on and rightly on um, bringing new people in and allowing beginners to join. But actually, unless someone sees someone who looks like them and is like them in a certain space, they're unlikely to stay. So we definitely need folks at every level in leadership too to be coaches and to own clubs and to be part of the federation leadership and to be part of Ironman's board of directors. <clears throat> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that we can make lasting change that way, right? Yes. Oh, you know, Secretary Powell passed yesterday. Mm. And, uh, you know, seeing him as Secretary of State when I worked there, uh, and he opened a lot of positions for people, but it was inspirational. Yeah. Absolutely. Really uh, so I, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that. And Alex, as a Latino military officer, has had similar, mm-hmm. not more dire experiences. Yeah, that's uh, once you see somebody that looks like you, it gets you an opportunity to say, maybe I can do that as well. Yeah. You know, I, I think so. Totally. We have, this is going to tell you how bad triathlon is but also is an inspiring story so my friend Sika Henry she recently became the first African-American female pro triathlete um, which is incredible and she spent three or four years trying to get her pro card uh, and I've known her through that whole journey so it's been so great to watch her and with that message that she's like no one else has done this I need to do it so that other 
folks know they can do it. But it also tells you a little bit about, you know, like it's 2021. <laughs> like, this Indeed. Is crazy late time to be having our, our first African-American we, female pro, but here we are. So, um, yeah. We, we continue to hear that in 2021. First this, first that. Well, please give a shout out to your friend in our podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, so, you also co-founding Mercury Rising Triathlon in Victoria. Mm-hmm. What are the goals as a coach, or do you still compete? What, what is that? Yeah, so I don't compete in triathlon anymore, um, but I did coach for about probably about 12 years. Um, okay. So I coached a lot of amateur athletes um, as a pro athlete. At some point during my, about halfway through my pro career, I realized that I was a little bit tired of chasing sponsorship dollars all the time because we were kind of like, that was kind of my okay. main paycheck. And I thought, you know what? I'd rather just coach some athletes and help them. It's, it's sort of, it just felt a lot better as a way of um, making some money to keep going. And so, yeah, I enjoyed coaching and I loved helping people achieve their goals for several years. Mm-hmm. So you just mentioned something that called my attention when you said, so while you were practicing, I'm assuming to, you know, you're a professional athlete, you were also trying to get sponsorship so you could survive. Yeah. I mean, how hard was that? Oh, how easy it was. You know, it's sometimes it was hard. Sometimes it was easy. Um, so I had a couple of really great sponsors through my career. I found that like creating relationships with, with brands and companies that you aligned with was the best way to do that, but it takes a long time. Um, and then other times it was kind of just heavy lifting because you're sending off like every fall I'd send off, you know, 25 letters to companies or emails and, and get back three things. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So it was even when you, and then, you know, once I, it was because it was partially because I hadn't won. So I could be second on the podium third, and it wasn't as interesting as if you're an Ironman champion. Oh, okay. Incredible. Hey, Sarah, we love coffee. <laughs> uh, coffee, drink coffee every day, so much of it. Uh, so how does iron, iron women's coffee help endurance athletes? <laughs> Great question. So iron women coffee, um, unfortunately, we're no longer doing the iron women coffee, but oh, it's oh, a great... No. This is what? a great story because my friend Max, he, the, when I started my media company, my friend Max reached out to me and we had put out this thing on social media. Like we're going to Ironman Canada and we're going to cover, we're going to do live race coverage on Facebook of the female pros. And he wrote to me right away and said, are you taking sponsors? <laughs> and I was like, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? So, yeah, and he had a coffee company, which he still runs, um, called Fen Coffee, and he made us an Iron Women blend, um, and that was our first sponsor. Um, So that was incredible, and yes, I'm forever grateful for Max and that, because that then became, from there, we are now, you know, a fully-fledged media company with, you know, 10 employees and, and going strong. So that was our very start. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Can you talk a little bit about your media company, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. It's called Feisty Media. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just, we're actually just launching our new website 
it'll probably be live by the time this uh, and you, what's the website? It's, it's livefeisty.com. Okay. Um, and we essentially, we create, we started by producing podcasts and doing live coverage of events. Um, now we do a number of education courses. So we do, we teach uh, women how to get the best out of their physiology. Um, we have a really big brand and course around menopause because we don't have a lot of information for active women going through menopause. It's usually pretty dire <laughs> and people don't really understand how to um, how to thrive during that time. So uh, we have that brand there. We have a um, another women's cycling team called Girls Gone Gravel. Um, we have a feisty triathlon team. That sounds great. I mean, but how did you get into so many parts? Great question. A lot of it has just been building together with other people. Um, so we made a partnership fairly early on with Dr. Stacy Sims, who's probably the premier sports uh, physiologist who studies, she's a sports scientist who studies uh, women's sports science. So she's the sort of the first person to put up her hand and say, Hey, wait, you're forgetting about women and all your studies. Mm -hmm. Um, And she started to study how uh, women's hormones affect their training, uh, sports training. And so she's written a a book called roar uh, that has sort of gone, sort of gone viral now amongst female athletes um, and so that's how we, that was one of the partnerships that got us started. Um, another partnership I made was with, um, the woman who runs a cycling called Catherine. She does, she had the girls gone gravel brand and we're launching a women's gravel festival um, mm-hmm. that will be in Arkansas in April, I think of 2022. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been a lot of really great partnerships and bringing together people who uh, have the same goals around highlighting women's sports and, and having more women be able to be active and participate. But do you, uh, do you really get eight hours sleep? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and she want to be retired, right? That's what she said, right? <laughs> Does anyone want to buy my business? Cause I think that's probably <laughs> Um, yeah i i i don't often get eight hours sleep no i thought that was supposed to be important for athletes i know you have to get eight hours i um now honestly now i only do i probably do one hour of exercise a day i do crossfit so um that's like allowed me to do short intense little burst and then get on with my day Oh, my son's a personal trainer, so he comes. He does the pre, the pre shake, the post shake, changes of trying what I'm trying to do, which I'm just trying to survive. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I bet if you sold your business, you start another one right after that. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. So Um, stop it. You're not the type to just sit down and sleep on the couch. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. What, what? You know, I got my own small business too. So, what I always like to talk to people who who uh, have business to you know what to learn because you're always learning. What 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 has been your challenges and what has been your surprises? Interesting. Yeah, I think my biggest surprise. This might sound weird, but like my biggest surprise was when we were actually successful. <laughs> so, so we because I got I was so used to bootstrapping right? Like we bootstrapped everything for two years. And then we came up with this course called women are not small men. 
And um, it was all about, it was for women who wanted to learn how to use their hormone cycle to get the best out of their training. And we put that course on sale and oh my God. That's <laughs> like, great niche too. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. So there's maybe your advice is like, I've not never been afraid to like niche down and say like, you know what, like, let's talk to our people and give our people what we need. A lot of people like who build businesses are trying to like talk the whole world. Like they want to come up with a product that the whole world wants, but actually that doesn't, it's really, really hard to build a community around that and to sell something. Um, so it's a lot easier to like find a niche of people, figure out what they're missing. Right. And then fill that hole. Um, so that was yeah, there you go. There's your, there's my success and my advice all in one. <laughs> Do you have any uh, financial challenges, like any startups? Yeah, so a lot of it, you know, because even when you, even when you make money, you have to decide what to do with that money. Like it's not just like you go and buy a yacht. Like that doesn't build cash your flow. Business. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you still have to decide who to hire, what business structures you're going to have, um, how you're going to build it, and that's just been a massive learning curve for me. Is figuring out um, like how to build it in what time frame, um, and it's it's still a learning curve. <laughs> how long you have been having that business? Four years. Oh, that was pretty good. Go ahead, Harry. Uh, but you're also your most important job is as a mom. <laughs> so how do you, how do you? I don't think a mom can actually balance work with being a mom. No. That's only some term a man would come up with. <laughs> you know, I only have one kid. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a big difference between one kid at once, once you're into like the multiples, mm-hmm. <laughs> then, then you're more like, then you're a parent. But right now I definitely have more time to focus on my business than I notice about parents who are, who have more than, than one kid. Um, so I don't know. She gets ignored a lot. She also gets dragged <laughs> around to a lot of things. <laughs> um, I'm leading by example. <laughs> Maybe that's it. She, that, that's what I'm doing. So, well, how old is she? She's ten. Oh, I bet you she's proud and she's absorbing everything that mom is look, doing. And look at mom; she's leading the world. So, congratulations! I, that's I the hope greatest so. <laughs> well, she's going to be proud for another two years. Then Correct. Then she's going to be crazy, but then she'll be proud again. You know? <laughs> It goes in a cycle, Sarah. <laughs> I believe you. She's already, she's 10, but she's kind of had early puberty. So she's yeah. already on that like phase. Like I am not cool at all right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Know, like it's. Yeah. Good luck with you, that. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and you don't know anything, right? <laughs> right exactly. Yeah. Well, Sarah, we're about to be at the end of our episode. You've been so gracious and it's been such a great uh, guest. So, Harry, please do our. Hey, thank you, Sarah. Ubiquitous didn't describe you. <laughs> you're, 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 you're more than anything we could have expected. More importantly, you have a sense of humor. Yes. A lot of successful people do not. Right. <laughs> so well, thank we, you both. This has been amazing. And uh, anybody that can survive, no son, we love. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Alex? 
Well, this was the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Harry. Thank you for tuning into the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Be sure to join Chief Alex Morales and Ambassador Harry Thomas again on the Voice America Variety Channel.